Susan, butcher box to the rescue. The other night we had some friends over for dinner and we had no idea what to make. And I was like, guess what? We have a freezer full of meat. So my husband went down and thought out some chicken from butcher box and made the best cocoa van that we've had in a long, long time. Yeah, you'd have been screwed without butcher box because I know you ain't got no time to go to the store right now. That's true. I don't have time to go shop for meat or pick out the meat or find the best quality, low priced meat. So butcher box does all of that for me. So true story, my husband's workplace has a Slack channel called Smoked Meats. And I know you can't like win a workplace conversation, but he is now because with the Box, his great cuts of meat to the door, they can cook up and take photos of for his workmates. <laughs> I love ButcherBox and I think other people would too. ButcherBox is the ultimate convenience, delivered right to your doorstep, free shipping always, with curated customized box plans. It's 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork, raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. There are a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive membership deals. They also provide recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. Sign up at butcherbox.com proof and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional 20% off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com proof and use code proof to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hi, and welcome to this week's Sidebar. We're here to discuss episode three of Proof Season 2, Murder at the Warehouse. In this episode, Secrets Don't Last, we finally meet the state's star witness, Josh Burroughs. But before we begin, I want to put a call out to anyone out there who might have information related to this case. We would very much love to hear from you. Even if what you know you might think seems small or probably not important, well, it might be. So if you think you know something that's relevant to the show, to the case, or that we might find interesting, seriously, hit us up. You won't be wasting our time. We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Give us a call or message us or send us an email. Our email is proofcrimepod at gmail.com. Our phone number is 929-267-3172. That's 929-267-3172. Or message us on Facebook. We're at Proof Crime Pod. For instance, in this episode, you heard about how Josh Burroughs was invited to the Home Depot party by a guy going by the nickname of Rapper Delight, or possibly Rapster, who, for the record, is not actually Richard Ornelas, like Josh Burroughs says. But if you happen to be in Manteca in the late 90s or early 2000s and happen to be acquainted with Mr. Rapster Delight, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Mainly because it will stop Susan from talking about it. 
That's yeah, why. I was, I, I was going to say, if anyone knows, I'd be eternally grateful they would reach out. Because or Rapper Delight himself, give me a call. Love to hear from you. I don't, Please. I don't think I can hear Susan turn to one more person and say, hey, do you know who Rapper Delight might be? <laughs> yes. Do us all a favor and please call. Like, I think I think you even asked the person at the In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> I think Worth she try. <laughs> so this week, we finally find out about the party which is the core of the state's case. Basically, the idea is that a bunch of teenagers, plus, you know, Ty Lopes, were partying at the almost finished Home Depot um, in Manteca that was being built. And in the middle of the party, five, six guys basically pull Renee to the middle of everything and rape and kill her while others watched on horrified, but no one but Josh Burroughs makes an attempt to stop it. Now, this is like the centerpiece of the state's case. Like, this is the case. And generally, when I'm looking into a case, I give what the state believes happened, you know, full consideration, complete respect. But I think here we, we were all in agreement that we couldn't pretend to believe the narrative that was put forth or ask our listeners to believe that, knowing that, that essentially the, the emperor has no clothes. There's nothing there. Yeah, I mean, I think going into it, it sounded a little ridiculous that there are that many people at a party and no one's tried to stop this murder and rape from happening. So in my mind, I had thought, well, maybe if there was a party, everyone left and it was just Ty, Jake, Renee in the end, you know, different scenarios that could possibly explain that there had been a party. There is no evidence to support that or any type of party ever happening. Yeah. We've spoken to a lot of people and I am beyond confident that if there had been a party like Josh Burroughs describes, we would have encountered someone who had knowledge of it. Well, the crux of it was that they're basically contending that there are dozens of kids, maybe as many as four dozen kids from what my recollection is. And nobody that you spoke to or nobody that you spoke to when I was on the trips as well, not one person was at the party. And we spoke to a number of people who would have been at the party had the party taken place. So you have to question whether the party actually took place. Yeah. And I mean, even aside from the fact that no one but Josh Burrow says they were at the party, there's no evidence supporting the idea, like physically or situationally, there was no indication that there'd been a party there. And I think the kind of the big, like the first giant red flag for me looking at the case file is that there were six guys living next to the Home Depot, like in trailers, workers who like you didn't want to leave, leave or go far. So they just had a trailer on site next to the Home Depot and none of them heard a party. You heard from one of them on the show, actually. He was like, if there had been that many kids partying there, the guys who were living right there in a trailer would have seen it. Yeah, that's pretty telling because I remember when I first got to Manteca, I was like, why would these guys be staying at the construction site? But then you all pointed out to me, town wasn't built up then, right? Mm -hmm. So they had no choice really but to stay in these trailers. Yeah, they were guys who were only in town to work in place so they didn't even rarely leave ever. They just worked, got the job done and left for a new site. And they would have heard if there was a party with dozens of kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, theoretically, it's possible that a smaller group could have been there and escaped detection. You know, if maybe, I don't know how many, but like, sure, it's conceivable that three or four people could have walked over there and not been noticed. But just the scale of the party that Josh describes, no, no way. Well, even if let's say they were away for a few hours or for a night or whatever, there was still no physical evidence of a party, right? So yeah. not only did they not hear the party, but there was no beer cans, no cigarette butts, no trash. There was nothing left behind from a group of kids having a party. And that also is just too hard to believe. 
you can't get dozens of kids to clean up their party at a Home Depot warehouse. Well, what if you offer them a tiny baggie of weed? (laughs) (laughs) But more on that next episode. Um, but you know what? Proving a negative is hard. Like trying to prove something didn't happen is a difficult proposition. But this podcast is kind of a great opportunity for that. Because, hey, if there's someone out there who missed, if there's someone who really was at this party and hears this show, let us know. Like if this party actually happened, I, I feel pretty confident this podcast will be heard by the people who are there. So why do detectives believe that this party happened? Well, because of Josh Burroughs. Josh Burroughs was, uh, he was 14 when this happened, uh, when Renee went missing and was killed. So he was younger than most other people you're, you'll hear about on the show, but he actually did know Fuji. He hung out at Fuji's place sometimes, which is how he ended up knowing Jake. So he was friends with a lot of these people, even if he was, you know, what, a freshman when they were all 17, 18, mostly. The interesting thing about Josh Burroughs is nobody else says that there was a party, that they attended the party. But when this person is the only eyewitness, you have to factor in here that nobody else is saying it. And I know that in the coming episodes, we're going to be looking at Josh Burroughs and what he says and his story. And I think that the audience will find that all shocking and compelling. Yeah, this happened for a reason. This wasn't just something that came up out of the blue. (laughs) When I was speaking to the two of you when you were on the road and talking to him, I know that I was completely astonished when you started to fill in the gaps for me. Yeah. So I've got a question for both of you. Have you ever tried hot damn cinnamon schnapps? I have not. <laughs> Kevin? What, what? What is it again? Hot damn cinnamon schnapps, my favorite. <laughs> I've certainly had my fair share of schnapps probably around when I was 14, but um, no, I can't say that I have. I mean, yeah, that part of Josh's story actually tracks. Like, that totally makes sense. Is what a 14-year-old kid is going to be buying from the grocery store. That's what you can get your hands on when you're 14, right? So, yeah. Well, he could technically get his hands on everything. His story is that 33-year-old Ty Lopes went out and bought it for him. Yeah, that's true. You just don't know any better at 14, I guess. <laughs> and we got a question from Anna on Twitter. And she asked, where was the 14-year-old child's legal representative or guardian and when the interrogation was taking place? And the answer is not there at the police station because it didn't have to be. And the detectives in this case interviewed lots and lots of minors, and there's no indication they were particularly concerned about getting parental, not even approval, but parental notification was happening because they don't have to. There was no requirement that a minor's parents have any involvement, knowledge, or giving permission for them to talk to the cops. So that sort of stunned me. So I was curious to ask the two of you, and particularly you, Susan, as a lawyer, How is that possible? We all have this idea in our head that as a minor, police are required to get, you know, parental consent for an interview, but that's not the case here. Is that like a thing in law and order? Is that how people think this? Because I know it's like a common belief, but it's just not true. There's no requirement for that in most states. It definitely was not here at that time in California. It's kind of funny though, like obviously minors do have some restrictions or something parents have to be involved in. So here's what happens during Josh's interrogation when he makes a request of the detectives. I got a very bad headache. You know, I'd give you some Advil, but we'd probably have to call your dad and get permission to do that because you're not 18. So they can question him without anyone there, but he can't get an Advil. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's just nuts. So at the time in California, it was there's no difference here. Minors had no particular restriction on how they were talked to, interrogated, Mirandized, none of that. 
Now, in 2018 in California, they actually did start passing laws that have changed that slightly, where for juveniles of various ages, I think actually they've now stood up to 18 all the way, but essentially like a 15-year-old cannot waive their constitutional rights without a mandatory consultation with a lawyer. So they can't waive like, their Miranda rights without a lawyer being there to explain it to them. Or talk to you. Usually it's like Skype or phone, but like. But that's only if they're under arrest. I was just sort of stunned because it's always been my impression that for anything, you have to get parental consent. And I guess I'm just naive. What was the deal with Kane? Like when Kane was getting worked over by Dallas Battle, they didn't need parental consent? No, I mean, his mom, I believe, was in the other room, but he just went into the interview room or the office by himself. No lawyer and his... I had always assumed when we talked about it, that Dallas Battle had basically done that illegally or claimed that his mother gave him permission. But as I'm understanding it now, he didn't actually need her permission. No, no. They often ask for it, but it's not needed. So they can't fucking vote, but they can be interrogated by police without an adult there. They can't even get an Advil from the cops to deal with their headache. They have to. (laughs) But they can be interrogated and they can be asked questions without an adult. I think they wouldn't use the word interrogated. I think they'd use the word questioned. It's a horrifying subject when you get into it because people assume there's protections here because they want to not see things like this happen. And yet they do. In this particular instance for Josh, um, his mom and stepdad actually were well aware of the various interrogations. And for a few interviews actually happened at Josh's house. You can even hear him in the background, like doing chores and like putzing around. So they were aware of it. They didn't object to any of it. They didn't care. So they were not going to stop. The cops had asked for permission. But later on, Josh does say things that technically could have been construed criminally. If the cops had wanted to go for him, they very likely could have. They didn't want to, obviously, but that doesn't mean he didn't put himself in jeopardy by doing this. I mean, it's not just Josh, too. Obviously, like Jake Silva, prime example, someone who needs to know right to silence exists and does not know that. (laughs) It's also like Jake doesn't think he has anything to hide. It doesn't occur to him not to answer the questions. It does not. And it should have. (laughs) Yeah. I think from sort of watching and listening to, to Jake's interrogation, And I thought this from the very beginning when I first saw it. He's actually looking to figure out what happened. Yeah. And they tell him that. They say like, hey, we know you love Renee. You want to help figure out what happened to her. So you got to help us figure that out by coming talk to us whenever we want to talk to you. I start to think like the the clips that are played in this past episode where they're telling him, you know, you're at the Home Depot and we know this and all this stuff. And he's like, I don't remember. Like, I wasn't there. He genuinely thinks like she may have been there at a party. Like he's confused. Yeah, he does not know the cops can lie to him. He has no idea detectives can tell him something's untrue. The only thing he really pushes back hard on is when they start telling him Josh's story about how, you know, some of the kids were skateboarding by flashlight through the Home Depot. And that he's like, wait a minute, I would definitely remember if that happened. I might believe that you know the truth better than I do, but that one, I'm pretty sure I would remember if that had been real. Yeah, he's like, maybe I can believe I was at a party and forgot it. Forgot because I got too drunk or whatever, but I would remember candles and skateboarding. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that had never sort of dawned on me before that it was that pitch black. Fuji sort of drove that home for me in the episode. You know, like, this is not possible. Like, we couldn't have been doing this. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, where's the candle wax and where are the leftover (laughs) candles? And, uh, I mean, Josh's story has some problems. And, 
we're going to get more into that next week. But for now, to give you an idea of like why investigators maybe should not put all their faith in Josh Burroughs, uh, let's take the issue of when this party happened. Now, you heard in the episode, and then as was said at trial, that the party happens like roughly on Memorial Day, maybe after, but like, you know, roughly that time period. But here's like Josh's full answer when detectives ask him when the party happened. Okay, then. And that was back in what month? Do you remember? Memorial? I remember it being Memorial Day, but I think it was March or April. I know it was close to 420, because that's probably its holiday. Um, I think it was a month after that. Exactly. So you think it was around the holiday, though, right? Yeah. Okay. So I know for a fact. So you can hear Josh in this clip say, I think it was March or April. I know it was close to 420, because that's, that's potheads all day. But obviously... 420 is not Memorial Day. Like Josh is maybe talking about an actual party that happened sometime, somewhere, but what he's talking about did not happen between Memorial Day in May, the end of May, and when Renee's body was found. It happened in, in the March Memorial Day, obviously. <laughs> March. Even if he had been talking about some party that happened at Home Depot, I mean, certainly somebody else would have remembered it being in April, not May. And just nobody seems to remember it at all. Yeah. One thing we do a lot while investigating is sign up for newspapers. Local papers all over the country try and track down some scrap of info from, I don't know, the random 2007 edition of the Memphis paper, just for hypothetical example. <laughs> hypothetical. But the problem is we always forget to cancel those subscriptions. Luckily, there's a solution for people like us who sometimes lose track of things. And that's Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, you get full control over your subscriptions and a clear view of your expenses. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. That's amazing. That's, that's all I want in life is for someone to always deal with customer service for me. It's like having a personal assistant. Rocket Money has over 5 billion users and has saved them over $500 billion and saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash proof. That's rocketmoney.com slash proof. Rocketmoney.com slash proof. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So as a result of Josh Burroughs' story, the detectives end up arresting three men, Jake, Ty, and Ray. And you hear for the first time from Ty, sort of, from part of his interrogation. Um, now, Manteca Police has declined our request to access the audio of that interview. They gave it to Real Interrogations, don't want to give it to us, 
can't imagine why. But you also heard the episode about an incident that happened before all this between Jake and Renee and Ty. The word they use in the transcripts in the court is molesting. They say that Ty molested Renee. I'll just use their verbiage, although I'm not sure that's how I describe it. Um, but essentially, there was one night when Jake and Renee have nowhere else to go. And rather than sleep in a park or something, they end up getting an offer from Ty to sleep on his floor. So they do that. And in the middle of the night, Renee wakes Jake up frantic and says Ty was trying to reach down her pants. So, you know, they flee the room. And then later, when Jake sees Ty on the street, pushes him down, kicks him in the head. Now, all of this definitely happened. The story you hear on the show is from Jake, but it's something that Ty verifies indirectly. He um, he massively distorts and downplays the incident of both like uh, the molestation of Renee and the battery later on. But he does confirm something like that happens. And we also know that Renee told at least a couple people at the time this is all happening about it. So it's not something that Jake's making up. It's real. This, this thing happened. And I mean, on the one hand, it does show that Jake and Ty did hang out together. They, they had a history of hanging out and knowing one another. On the other, though, it, like, it makes Ty an extremely odd choice of accomplice for a crime like this. Right, because why, after Ty did this to Renee, why would Jake go to Ty and be like, hey, do you want to kill Renee with me? Like, why would he ever consider approaching Ty? Yeah. And it's Jake who first names Ty as a suspect when they're asking him that first interrogation, who could have done this? Who didn't what was? And he says, well, I'm, Ty's probably pissed at me because I kicked him in the head. I had a question about this. So are they still hanging out after this happens? Ty and... And Jake? Um, no. Well, no. The story that Jake would say is no. The story that the prosecution would say is yes. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the interesting things is that if they're not hanging out, it's incredibly unlikely that they would somehow even be together to do something like this. Yeah, it's definitely a problem. And the prosecution does have a way of trying to repair that, which we'll hear about later on. But they obviously knew it was a problem for them because it, it just it makes it hard to understand how these dynamics even could have played out. I think one of the things that stood out for me in the episode and in the interrogations is they're basically telling Jake that Ty said X and they're telling Ty that Jake said X. Yep. And that's like, there's nothing illegal about them doing that. I just think that um, they're basing everything on this one eyewitness testimony from Josh Burroughs and they're creating another scenario inside the minds of these two suspects. And, um, you know, when people start telling you things, I think certainly in Jake's case, you assume that you're being told something that's accurate and uh, that creates problems in a person's mind. Yeah. Although I think for Jake, I think he, for him, it made more sense that Ty would say some crazy shit about him. So I don't think he was phased by that. I kind of disagree with that. I think Jake, it just confused him even more. Like, why would Ty say that? Why would he even say that? You can hear kind of the frustration and the confusion in his voice. And like Kevin said, he has no reason to question what the detectives are telling him. He's just, he believes them. Mm -hmm. I think it starts to become this situation where he's wondering why these people are saying he's at this party or, or something because he's just confused because he doesn't know anything about it. And I think he's operating under the idea that everything he's being told is accurate. Yeah. Although he does say at one point, he's like, can you tell me who's saying this? What if it's someone who has a grudge against me and is lying about it? So I guess in his head, he's thinking maybe someone who doesn't like him or, you know, is mad at him because of Renee. 
would be making some lies to the cops. But yeah. There, there's almost like this naivete to that, right? Like he's he's giving everybody the benefit of the doubt. Oh, maybe somebody doesn't like me. I don't think he grasps the fact that he's playing for his life right now. No, he definitely does not. In a lot of respects, Jake would be the perfect setup for a wrongful confession. Like that has a lot of the elements that you see in a lot of false confession cases. Uh, you know, not not a minor, but cl- very close to being one, just a month away from being a minor, basically. Not that well educated, not well versed in how the legal system works, emotional, desperate, cornered, um, intense pressure tactics. Like a lot of the stuff that you expect to see in a false confession case is there, but I actually kind of believe that Jake would never have falsely confessed. Like that's just not even on the menu for him. Like it doesn't even occur to him. That's an option. Yeah. Cause he's not going to say something. I mean, from my impression of, of the interrogation, he's not going to say something that he didn't do. Yeah. Like I, I, I agree with you. I don't think he'd be one of those people where if he was told like, if you confess like this ends and you can go home. I don't think, I still think, I think he'd stay there for all time. Just say, well, I didn't do anything. So Now, a lot of you guys had questions about what was going on with Jake and Renee and why they were out in the streets and what exactly their situation was. On the show, you've heard people describe the way they were living as basically fine, just kind of a thing kids did. And you've heard others kind of express more concern and alarm about it and that they didn't think it was a great situation for Renee or or for Jake, for that matter, to be in. And I think both things here are true in a way. This was more than just kids being kids. And quite frankly, this is not something that someone does when everything in their life is, you know, perfectly rosy and fine. But also it's not as extreme a thing to be doing as it might seem to some listeners. It was definitely a more normalized behavior for their circle in that place and time. I didn't find it shocking when I was out there working with you guys on the story. It all seemed to make sense. Like this is just how that group of kids functioned and nobody would have thought it was crazy. And had Jake not broken the windshield, they would have just been living in the car. Yeah. yeah. And if you look on our Facebook page, the Proof Facebook page, a lot of people have written in from Manteca who lived there during this time period and who have expressed like, this wasn't out of the ordinary. This is just what we did back then. So I think you're right. For people listening who aren't familiar with that kind of lifestyle or those choices, it's going to raise flags. But at this time, for this group of kids- It's still raise flags. Though. There's still something- it's still a sign something was amiss, I think. It's a little off, I mean, in my opinion, but it's also a different town back then. Like it just mm-hmm. didn't didn't seem like it was probably nearly as dangerous living on the street then as it would be now. Yeah. Anyway, I figured I'd let Jake answer some of the more specific questions that we got since, you know, he's the one who was there living it at the time. A lot of people had the sort of similar thoughts that that I did, quite frankly, when I started working on the case, that Renee and you were either on drugs or else that Renee was engaged in prostitution to try and get by. Nah, she never did no shit like that. No, there was no drugs involved either. We drank, like I said, we drank and King Cobra, (laughs) King Cobra and uh, Steel Reserve 211 was was our favorites, but no drugs and she wasn't prostituting. She wasn't getting along with her mom. I wasn't getting along with my dad. That was the only way we could be together. And it was, it felt good. It was a great feeling being able to do whatever we wanted. We had a car, we had to do whatever we wanted. It was a great feeling, especially so, being 18, 17, 18. On a scale of one to 10, how confident were you that she was not prostituting? 100%. Why, was she behind my back no, or something? No, no, no. 
Do you get why people? Uh, do you get why people of, might would look at this case and and wonder that though? Uh, I guess yeah. Like as I was dialing your number, calling you back, I was thinking about that. Like, no, that would have never. It would have never happened. That would have never went down. That fuck no. The jealous is as jealous as I was, and as as, as much as I loved Renee, fuck hell no. So there's one thing I think Jake is a, a little wrong about um, in his mind and in the minds of a lot of people, actually, who knew Renee. There's sort of this idea that Renee left home to be with him, that that Jake's the reason Renee left her house and stopped living with her family. But I think the idea that it was all about Jake doesn't quite fit what was happening. Um, it, it wasn't it wasn't just about Jake. We talked to Renee's friend, Jackie who you'll hear from more later in the season. But she showed us a scrapbook she'd made of things from Renee from back then and you know, told us what she was like. Here's a clip. But she really wanted kids, wanted a family. Like the, there was in that scrapbook, yeah. there was when, I, when you were flipping and I saw the color, I was like, oh, it was a little, there was a wheel we had to make in Home Ec. And it was our, you know, our five-year plan goal, you know. And so mm-hmm. I think that I looked, oh, I saw the uh, yeah, wheel in there. The wheel, yeah. Was. So that's what that was. Um, that was from our home ec class when after um, she passed. Our home ec teacher, she ended up giving it to me. Wait, so what were her so, so hers was graduate, get married, quit smoking, move out in April, which I don't know why April was a significant month for her, but move out in April and then get a job. She turned 18 in April. Oh, yeah, yes, that's true. April 17th would have been. Mm-hmm. So then she would have been like, peace out. I'm an actual adult. So, oh, so she bye. Really was plotting this. She, yeah, mm-hmm. she, so, yeah, and this was, this was, um, so this was made the first week of junior year, um, second period, apparently. So, mm-hmm. and back then school started at the very, very end of August or the very first week of September yes. mm-hmm. is the time frame this would have been made. So she was plotting that for mm-hmm. some time. Yeah, beginning of junior year. So in that clip, you can hear Renee's friend talk about this project and that she had a plan to leave home when she turned 18. And this was a plan that she noted at the beginning of when Jake and Renee had just started dating. But it seems like it's something she had talked about and thought about. So maybe it was it was an idea she had in mind already, and Jake was just someone who helped her achieve that dream, if you want to call it that. I, I just never take anything that anyone says as face value at that age. But. Maybe that's true, but it, it does to me at least indicate that um, the, the idea of leaving, it didn't originate with Jake anyway. Yeah, I, I don't think it originated with Jake. I think Renee wanted to leave home probably if, um, wanted to be independent, wanted to start her life. And Jake was someone who um, it just happened to to work out with that she did that. She found the courage or whatever, the drive, whatever she needed to actually make it happen. Yeah. So next week, episode four, we're going to hear more about Ty Lopes and who he was and how he got involved in this case and what happened at his trial. So tune in then, and we'll catch you next week on The Sidebar. You've been listening to Proof Sidebar, a podcast by Red Marble Media in association with Glassbox Media. Send us your questions and comments at proofcrimepod at gmail.com. Follow us everywhere with the handle at proofcrimepod and on our website, proofcrimepod.com. Regular episodes drop on Mondays, and you can find sidebars on Thursdays. 
Thanks so much for listening.